folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac, and we're here with our final installment of the Prole Model series. Since you're listening, you probably know you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you're enjoying what we're doing here and you would like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast, Societal Collapse and Reconstruction. If you're interested and you're willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. We've also got extended clips from the upcoming series all on the Patreon as well for all of the episodes. So if you're interested in hearing us talk with a number of guests, go check it out. On top of this content, we've also got stickers available, and we're including some footage from my farm putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go check out the Patreon. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you'd want to follow us over there, and we have a Discord as well. If this is your first episode, we highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. However, this is the last episode of this miniseries, and I, for one, think it's been quite a journey over the past few months, and it's been really exciting to see the different ways different parts of the world have tackled the challenges of providing sustainable, resilient food systems for their unique climate without the need of capitalism. There's a few things I want to talk about in this episode. The whole point of this mini-series was to tackle the question of how to deal with issues surrounding the rise of various agricultural practices, such as permaculture and regenerative agriculture. We talked about a lot of them in our permaculture episode and highlighted the need to dig deeper and figure out what was at the heart of the issue of centering permaculture on a foundational text when, in fact, the text was the reification of indigenous farming practices. The challenge becomes, for a lot of white allies, what can we do? We may be passionate about these practices and truly mean well, but what is the solution, especially when it feels as though the future of the planet is at stake to find new ways to grow food, store carbon, and reduce our reliance on petrochemicals? We've worked our way through this mini-series, starting with the urban farming projects of Havana, to talk about what it meant for a community to reclaim its food autonomy outside of the framework of capitalism, and followed that with a similar journey happening right here in the United States, in Detroit. We felt it was not only helpful but necessary to trace the history of agriculture across the globe and to see how these common threads play out everywhere. We can see in our own histories once we take the time to learn what we can about our ancestors, the practices that had sustained us for a millennia, and those practices went largely unchanged for thousands and thousands of years. These indigenous practices have largely been erased and are, in fact, similar to those practices our greatest of ancestors once held as part of their daily life. That doesn't mean we can just close the book on it and embrace permaculture, because while we can point to these similarities, 
we still must see the trees in the forest to reframe the phrase. Those nuances, and in some cases, massive differences of systems, are the result of thousands of years and generations working the land and learning the land in a way no permaculture instructor ever can. And that doesn't tackle the other issues of pseudoscience and all of the other issues we brought up in that first part of the series. In this series, we also looked at both how people have been challenged by climate throughout history and learned to adapt. And we looked at how some groups have challenged the hegemonic narrative of homogenous capitalism as our only food system through education and recentering of foodways and learning to find reconciliation between their past and present. This process isn't easy, but it can be done as evidenced across the globe. We all have a history of resilient local food systems, and it's in my opinion, our job as white people in particular to learn our history and how we were once indigenous and part of a local ecology ourselves. While this might seem a bit self-righteous, I personally believe this process is important in helping to reduce the gaze we bring to our views of what I guess you could call modern indigenous communities. We fetish and, and hindsight, you'd have to go back pretty far to see where most white people would be indigenous. Sure. And I, think about all that history that you would learn along the way trying to track that down. Yes and no. I mean, we when we talked about Norway, many of those farming practices were going on until the 19th century. Till, so, till other white people showed up? Till capitalism showed up. Other white people. I mean, yeah, other white people. So who are the worst white people? Probably the British. Oh, see, we're going back in real far back into history. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and and that's this isn't to say that there's this easy way to erase or that you know by doing this research we've fixed all of the problems, but we can't really move forward without understanding how we ended up where we are. Yeah, otherwise and, we're walking in circles. We have to know where we've been. Yeah, and that's I think the the thing that's missing in the conversation about permaculture is that. Instead of trying to figure out who we are, where we came from, both us as the farmer and the landscape and what the landscape has been through, we're just trying to say, these are quote unquote indigenous practices, so let's apply them everywhere. Right. It's almost as if there's gaps in the knowledge because those gaps are created by assumptions as to what came before. Yeah. And we can't really work or operate or apply solutions that are based on assumptions without actually knowing how things work. Yeah. And we assume and we give this uh, false sense of authority to like permaculture instructors or Bill Mollison or whatever. And like, yeah, he, you know, the permaculture handbook might be a good book, but that doesn't erase the fact that what was uh, indigenous knowledge in Australia doesn't really have any place here in New England. The, those histories are totally different. And what the landscape needs here is much different. And even for the permaculture instructors that have made those adjustments and realized that sometimes it's not quite plug and play as we, we try to believe, there's still a, a topical representation of indigenous knowledge in most cases. And occasionally, there are, that's not to say there aren't any good permaculture instructors. I'm not trying to say that at all. But there's, you know, I, I brought this up in one of the episodes, I think, at least. Maybe it was one of the interviews that's coming up in the new series. But we kind of fetishize and tiptoe around indigenous knowledge and really dance on the edge of calling it like the noble savage. You know, we, we have this envisionment of indigenous people being perfectly in tune in the, with the land. 
but we treat it as though it's because there's something different about them, not just that they were more in tune with the land. Like there, it was more than just their existence. It was something that made them different. Than right. The it's operating under an assumption. It's failing yeah. to recognize that the reason the indigenous people know about the land is because they've lived there for so exactly. goddamn long. It, it's failing to acknowledge any of that. And it's saying, you know, they magically discovered this because they're so in tune with nature. It's a solution for us now. But again, failing to realize that, you know, it was lived experience that brought that knowledge in, in hindsight, right? Yeah, it, it's not a, a qualitative difference between indigenous people and us, but rather that they have, the, you know, this genuine relationship with the landscape that we don't have and becoming a permaculturalist isn't going to change that unless we really fundamentally change our relationship with the landscape. And we saw that in Japan with the Satayama uh, landscapes mm -hmm. where they tried to bring people back in, but it was never in any meaningful way. It was more of for people that wanted to just have it as a hobby or like a one day thing. They never really changed their relationship with the landscape and the landscape, despite them doing a lot of the similar activities, didn't quite rebound the same way that it would have been expected, given the fact that they, quote unquote, were treating the landscape in its traditional sense. So that, that speaks to the fact that we really need to think about what it means to have these relationships with our landscape. One of the other things that I think really stood out as we were doing this series is the fact that very few of the indigenous farmers that we looked at relied heavily on fruit trees, which is a really core staple of a lot of permaculture. The only people that I think I saw, and I mean, we obviously looked at only about five or so indigenous farming practices, and I think only one of them had any meaningful amount of fruit in their diet. And that was the people of the Western Ghats. And I, even then, I don't think it was a significant part, but it was like a meaningful part. Whereas again, in permaculture, I feel like it's a, a, a vital part of what those food systems look like. And I think that already points to the fact that we're starting to see this split between permaculture and indigenous farming practices. Right. Again, gaps in knowledge. It's, exactly. It seems like so, that, that's what it seems like to me. I, I'm not saying I have the answer, but no, and I, I mean I'm not either. But it points to the fact that permaculture is topically what it offers. It kind of reminds me of the difference between like leftists and liberals, where on paper they might seem at first glance like very similar, but if you follow their logic, they end in very different places. Mm -hmm. Liberalism doesn't fix any of the fundamental problems. You know, tax the rich more; it's going to fix everything. They write the laws. They they control everything. They're going to get around it. And you're going to try to tax them more and tax them more. And like it doesn't change the systemic problems where the money is continuing to go to the rich. Mm. Whereas leftists will say, well, the system is the problem. And that's how we fix the problem. And I feel like that exists with permaculture versus like these indigenous farming practices where permaculture isn't quite seeing the full problem. Mm -hmm. And it because of that, you don't end up at the same. Sometimes you might end up at the same destination. But very often you don't. If you're trying to farm a landscape and you have a good understanding of ecology and you have a good understanding of agriculture, you can come up with a good permaculture system, but it, it may or may not tie into the traditional indigenous farming practices, which the landscape has evolved with over, in most places, at least 10,000 years. And I think ignoring that history is damaging to us trying to uh, revitalize the landscape. And that, that's the piece that's missing in permaculture, is bringing it back to the ecology and improving the ecology. 
investing more in those complex systems that are so important for the planet to survive. And again, there's that inherent uh, aspect of colonization where it's kind of like, you know, we're going to come in with technology and all these answers and, and fix everything. And I think that's one of the underlying issues with permaculture that, you know, we've pointed out with this conversation is if you ignore some of those aspects and come in with assumptions, then you're not really helping. It's not, you're not achieving those goals, even though they're aligned with, um, what am I trying to say? Even though they're, uh, the goals are aligned with, you know, noble causes, you're trying to achieve something that's worth doing. I, I still feel like operating under those assumptions and having those gaps in knowledge, it's just sort of reinventing the wheel because there's already tried and true methods that have been in play for a long time. Yeah. And you're coming in trying to, you know, start start over from square one, which might, yeah, not, might not be necessary. Yeah. And it, it, it reminds me, we did, um, we did an episode on the prologues about fruit trees in cities and the reason why they got rid of them or a big reason why was because of the fact that they made a giant mess. Litter. Yeah. Litter. And, that's kind of what permaculture feels like sometimes to me. Like they're always like, Oh, we're going to create a food forest and whatever we don't eat will drop to the ground and the bugs or whatever mm -hmm. eat them. But in a complex system, trees don't create massive amounts of fruit for it to fall and have ants eat it. Right. Maybe a couple, but it's designed for that energy to be transferred in many ways as possible. Right. And that's lost if you're growing 30 apple trees or whatever and it's like yes i'm gonna eat 200 pounds of apples but what about the other 3,000 pounds right like, again it's working on assumptions that you yeah. can simply plug and play things yeah. and it's a simple solution but you that's not how complex systems work and it's not having a true understanding of ecology yeah and like so, you can put some in the compost and you can do this and that the idea is to get it to go through as many layers of that food web as possible before it goes back to dirt right and that's I think lost in that conversation. Right. It's, uh, I don't know. It feels like an oversimplification when you work on assumptions and gaps in knowledge, you have, uh, the only thing you can do is have a broader view or a broader understanding of what's actually in play. Yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, I keep saying gaps, but that's what it feels like. It feels like there's good information there, but it doesn't seem like it all fits together cohesively. It's just sort of a snapshot of a, jigsaw puzzle yeah with missing it, pieces no absolutely it's a snapshot of again the indigenous farming practices in australia when bill mollison wrote the book and it's evolved to an extent but fundamentally it's still based on that principle and it's erasing the indigenous knowledge the ancestral knowledge the knowledge of the landscapes in a lot of these places where you know, our landscapes are so degraded already and we're going to come in and make all these changes. And, you know, sometimes with invasive species, sometimes without a true understanding of what we're doing long term to a landscape by changing the water flow patterns and things like that. And again, this isn't to say that those things are inherently bad or anything like that, but simply that the conversation is much more complicated than permaculture tends to lead on. So I think this begs the question now of, What's next? Where do we go from here? Is there any way to make sense or to salvage permaculture? Or are we just stuck fighting these same arguments that some people try to reform permaculture while the rest of us try to say there has to be an alternative? 
And I don't know if I really have an answer. And I don't think the goal is to get everyone on the same page because that's not really what we do as anarchists. Our goal has been to point out the the history that's been lost. And one of the really interesting things about this project has been the fact that a lot of the research we did, if I searched for something online and it wasn't through a traditional academic research area, the information doesn't exist. And that very thoughtful process of erasure of, and I say indigenous, and I, I quite mean literally all cultures, and how that erasure of pre-capitalist society outside of mercantilism, how that looks and how how quietly those histories have been erased points to the fact that this information needs to be learned, even if we don't apply it. And there's plenty of questions we can ask about whether or not this is something we can apply, given climate change and the degradation of our ecology. But that said, there's so many nuggets of good information that exist in those indigenous histories. And it's up to us to look to them to see what we can learn and what we can pull out of it that we can apply in the modern world. So while I don't have an answer of what's next and where do we go from here, the important thing is to be asking the right questions around where did we come from and how does that help us frame the narrative around what sustainable agriculture and authentic human experience with nature look like. It's a really challenging conversation to have in a lot of ways. And again, the goal isn't for criticism or to try to prove that there's a better alternative to permaculture, but to say, if we're going to do this, we should do it right. And when I say do this, I mean try to create that permanent agriculture, the meshing of ecology and our food systems, which is an inherently good project. That said, we need to be very thoughtful about what that means and how we do it and how we can view ourselves over the long term with our ecology. Because when we look at places like the areas we had looked in this series, we can see thousands and thousands and thousands of years of work and slow evolution in most cases where the indigenous peoples learned to live and evolve with the climate that changed with them. That's what we're looking at in the future. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this series. It was really fun to make. And despite the fact that it was extremely heavy on research, it was interesting to see all the information that I'd never been aware of and to start finding out about things that I'd known a bit about, but I had never really dug in deep on it. So I hope that interest translated to you guys. There's a million more subject areas or indigenous farming systems that we had wanted to look into, and we just simply didn't have time to get into those episodes. So it's possible if people are interested, we'll do another series like this. If not, I'm sure we'll be posting about various areas that we had been interested in researching but didn't get into. So if you guys want to do the research and check it out, you can go for it. Ultimately, our goals are to make more sustainable systems that help enhance nature as opposed to existing nearby nature or as a mirror of nature or similar to nature or any of those other terms, but actually be a functional component of our natural systems. So... Hopefully you guys enjoyed this series. It was really fun to do. 
And, um, you know, if you haven't heard it yet, go back to the beginning of it and go check it out. Any final thoughts, Elliot? We did a lot of information and digging. You did a lot of information and digging for research for um, these episodes. So I wanted to say thank you for doing that because it means yeah. a lot to me. Um, and the conversations that we did have when we were having them, I wasn't sure how they all fit together. <laughs> but I feel like we sort of did go through um, the outline and cover the basis of what we were talking about with the issues with permaculture. And hopefully our goal was to try to fill in some of those gaps that I keep talking about with how, you know, there is good information in permaculture, but how is that applied to, you know, the areas that we live in and other areas around the world? I feel like it's important to have, like like we said, have an understanding of our past, to understand where we've been, to understand uh, where the hell we're going in the future. And um, even if we're going in the right direction or God forbid we get lost again, what are we going to do then? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And I think that's the last point I want to make is this idea of what the future holds. We bookended this series on purpose with what seems like seemingly opposite ideas. So we started talking about Havana and Detroit before we jumped into indigenous foodways. And that might seem kind of odd, especially because we ended the show with the Anishinaabe and their goals of decolonization. And this was kind of done on purpose where we were focusing on this idea of let's look at how people create foodways and food communities and identity through their foods. We use that in Detroit and Havana as a way to see that within an urban setting and what it looks like to create that community and the effort that needs to go into it and how that needs to be local and directed by the community, not by uh, an overseeing entity, whatever that might be. We decided to wrap up with the Anishinaabe because of the fact that they presented an alternative to the idea of simply just coming together, but in fact, trying to reclaim their identity, which didn't really exist in Havana or Detroit, where those communities are picking up the scraps where their histories have largely been erased in terms of foodways prior to the 19th, 18th century. And in these cases, they're trying to create for the first time these foodways and food communities and culture, whereas the Anishinaabe are trying to reclaim it, what D-Town Farms and the other organizations in Detroit are doing, for example, where they're challenging capitalism but it's not framed in their own history, but in creating that history. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this. If you did, I know it was a quick episode. It's just a wrap up for the last series. Um, if you enjoyed it, give us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Patreon. This is Andy. And this is Elliot. This is the Poor Proles Almanac. Almanac.